good to see all of you again this evening. <clears throat> it's been a, a pleasure being here and, and being with you all. Someone asked me the other, or this morning I guess it was, how it's going. I said, well, it's going a lot better than I feared. And I sometimes get stage fright, especially when I'm standing in front of people I don't know. Well, I see familiar faces. A number of you are familiar, and so that helps, <clears throat> at least the first night. I again want to want to bless you for being here and your kind attention, not only tonight, but this morning, last evening. I really believe that God blesses those that earnestly seek him and wants to meet them and wants to meet their needs, whatever they are. I don't know what your needs are this, tonight. God does. And I want to thank you for your kind hospitality. There's good food in the Shenandoah Valley, and there's good fellowship. God bless you as you continue serving each other and serving others in that way. The blessing of a unified church. If we go one more verse further in James chapter 1, where Brother Jonathan turned our thinking, it talks about something that I think is very crucial and that we need to understand when it comes to a unified brotherhood. And I don't know if you glanced a little further than, than where he stopped. But it says something, I don't have it open in front of me, but it says something about having a bridled tongue or an unbridled tongue. Does it make a difference in our brotherhood unification or oneness when we have a bridled tongue or unbridled tongue? James tells us that a man that has an unbridled tongue, his religion is what? It's vain. It's useless. And I, I know Brother Jonathan probably didn't have all this in mind when he shared those previous verses. But over here on my diagram, the bottom right-hand circle, those of you that were here last night and this morning know what I'm talking about more fully. Who is king of your heart when we talk about issues like we talked about this morning in Brotherhood in the Brotherhood Agreement. And tonight is just kind of an extension of this morning's message. A unified church. That song that we sang, 350, the second song, if we meant every word that we sang in that song we could say amen and go home and think about it and put it to practice and we would be better because of it. That's middle, the second verse, 350. You want to turn there, that's fine. If not, that's okay. But the second verse really stood out to me as we were singing it. May we all so love each other and all selfish claims deny. How does that fit with our, our diagram up here? It's either self or Jesus Christ that's sitting on that throne that's ruling my life. 
and we just sang in there, and all selfish claims deny that the brother for the brother will not hesitate to die. Wow. Even so, our Lord has loved us for our lives. He shed his blood. Still he grieves, and still he suffers when we mar the brother. Powerful. That is powerful. If we would live up to that middle verse, it would take care of a lot of disunity within our congregations. When I was in first and second grade, I don't know if we sang it so much in third grade, but I remember singing that little song that has some motions that go with it. When we all pull together, you all know that song? When we all pull together, pull together, pull together, how what will be? How sad? How antagonistic? How happy will be? And and we kind of think about that song and we kind of smirk. And But you know what? That little song has some very powerful concepts when it comes to this thing of unification in the brotherhood. Work together, sing together, pray together. And all of these things, if we do these together and we're genuine in our actions with each other, how happy we'll be. Blessing of a unified church. Unity, according to Webster's, says this as definition, the quality of not being multiple. The quality of not being multiple, oneness. Not to elevate certain brands of cars, but Henry Ford is known to invent the assembly line concept. When everybody did their job with pride, they felt good about the product rolling out the end door. But it only takes one person to ruin the whole product. You take someone that woke up this morning, that morning and just kind of had a bad attitude and said, I really don't care what kind of quality of work I do, and was a little bit sloppy in his work. And it would have ruined all the cars that he touched that rolled out the end door that day. And you know what? That's a little bit like it is in the church. We can have an ever ever so good edifice, but it only takes one person to ruin the flavor, ruin the testimony, ruin the witness that the congregation is trying to uphold. Question for us to think about. Would your church, and I, rec- I recognize that there's more than just the Bethany church being represented here tonight, but would your church be a perfect church if you were the only one there? What do you think? Would your church be a perfect church if you were the only one there? Well, I see some heads going in the negative way. And you are exactly right. You are exactly right. But then why 
why is it that when we have members meetings, we have conference, we discuss issues, that somehow we just can't see it from someone else's perspective? Amos 3.3 says this, can two walk together except they be agreed? We kind of know the answer to that. And you've probably sat in weddings that they use that for their theme verse. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And the answer is no. And rightly so. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. Again, these verses are probably verses that you've heard at weddings. And you may say, well, preacher, we came here to have a Bible conference and find out how to have unification in our congregation, not a marriage seminar. Well, there's there's some principles that make for a good marriage that makes for a good congregation as well as far as the unity factor goes. But as we read this, I want us to, and I might kind of emphasize some of the phrases that relate to the church. And it is amazing to me how much the church, the emphasis of the church comes out in these number of verses. 5.22 Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. There we have the first church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, he that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. What keeps us married? Those of you who are married, what keeps you married? Those of you that aren't married, what should keep a married couple married? Sometimes you all maybe have better answers than those of, those of us that are married. <clears throat> Finding the perfect partner? Is that what keeps us married? Finding someone that fits me? We live in a fits me 
society. I drive a car that fits me. I get a job that fits me. I buy a house that fits me. And so I get a wife that fits me. And if these things don't fit me, I get rid of it and find something that does fit me. Okay? So getting a wife that fits you, is, is that what keeps you married? Someone that has the right chemistry? And we just click? And we live happily ever after? Well, we all know that these answers or these questions are, are in the negative. Reality is that every human relationship is going to run into a snag somewhere, sometime. Every human relationship is going to run into a snag somewhere, sometime. So, what does it take to resolve those snags? It's an unconditional commitment to unity. An unconditional commitment to unity. What keeps us married? When we unconditionally commit ourselves, husbands, to love our wives, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the responses, regardless of the emotional upheaval, regardless of... You name it. And wives... It takes an unconditional commitment to respect your husband regardless of whether he's deserving of it. Yeah, sometimes we get rather crude and we get rather blunt and we get rather whatever. But if there's a unconditional commitment to respect your husband at all costs, you'll work through the issues and you'll stay married. We are, we are committed to death do his part. How does this unity come about or stay around? Back to our diagram. It's the surrender of self. It's the surrender of self. And we need to try to see it from the other's perspective. In verse 32 in, in Ephesians 5 here, Paul says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It seems to me that Paul uses the illustration of unity between him and the Father, or, or himself and the church, and how he gave his life, and, and, and it's, a, it's, a perfect, it's, it's a perfect example. Jesus is perfect, and so it's a perfect example. And, and he uses that illustration for instructions for us husbands and wives in making our marriages work. But then he turns around and he uses the illustration of the husbands and wives making things work and getting along, and he brings that down and he applies it to church life. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but some time ago I, I was looking at why does he bring, but I, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, and I, okay, so is he talking about Christ and the church, or is he talking about marriage relationships? What's he talking about? Well, I think he's probably talking about both things. Unity is not achieved by determining who is right, but rather what is right, and then everybody surrenders to that level. Just like marriages, within the congregation, there must be a commitment to unification through dialogue. If we don't talk, it, it, it's not going to get better. We must 
dialogue. We must communicate. How many of our marriages would last if when we got married, we held divorce as an option? Would we stay married? We run into a snag? Well, I'm out of here. Find someone else better. Someone else that fits me, okay? It's sad to say I think there's too many marriages in our society that have that go to the marriage altar with that option in mind and that don't last. How many of us join church with divorce as an option? If things don't go the way I want them to go, I'm out of here. Or maybe we don't join because there are things that I don't like. Let's face it. The real reason that we have struggles within our congregation is because I'm not willing to surrender my right to my own opinions. Who is sitting on your throne? The reason we have dysfunctional homes is because there are a lack of commitment to unity. I suggest to you that the reason we have dysfunctional churches is because there's a lack of commitment to unity. Jesus said, and is quoted in Luke eleven seventeen. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against itself falleth. We cannot afford to have kind of a ho-hum attitude towards a commitment to unity. And there's, there's give and take. We must be willing we must be willing to give up our rights to my opinion about a certain thing. If we think that we have the right answer, we think that we have the right opinion, that everybody else ought to embrace my opinion, then I can go right back to the first question that I ask, or one of the first questions that I ask is if this church would be a perfect church if you were the only one there. And if we have too high of opinion of our own opinions, we should be able to say yes to that first question. And we all know what the answer is to that. Unity within the congregation doesn't come through a tug-of-war experience. But who can overpower who? I'm sure probably most of you have have helped in a tug of war relay, and yeah, the goal is to overpower the person on the other end of the of the rope, and it's it, it's fun, it, it's it's okay, but in church life, unity doesn't come through it tug-of-war experience. It's not by who's powerful. It's not by who can talk the most. It's not but rather by submitting one's opinion or opinions for the sake of unity within the brotherhood. You see, brotherhood must be held to a higher plane than my, my own opinions. 
There are very few church divisions that are happening over doctrinal issues. There are also very few startups with a true heart for reaching out. Even though that might be kind of what they're saying, well, we're going to get involved in mission work and that kind of thing. And, and some people have used the illustration between Paul and Silas when they had that sharp disputation and Paul went his way and Silas went, Silas went his way. And, you know, look at the people that they were able to bless separately versus together. Friends, I really don't think that was God's intention. God doesn't intend for us to divide over petty issues, if you please, so that more churches can be established. That's not God's intention. That's not God. God doesn't want. God wants. God wants. Churches to be mothering other churches, not being a product of dissension and confusion and separation, divorce. We need to understand the God that God, the creator of the church, intends for diversity to be active within a given congregation. Just for an illustration about God's diversity, I've been told, I can't prove this, but I've been told that there are no two snowflakes that are the same. Uh, I don't know how they know that, but that's what I've been told. And I guess the scientists have more time than I do to try to figure that out. But there's no two snowflakes that are the same. But it sure takes a lot of diverse, different snowflakes to make a pile of fun, doesn't it? I've also been told that your fingerprint is uniquely yours. How they know that, I'm not sure. They, I don't think I ever gave anybody my fingerprint so that they could see whether there's someone else out there with my fingerprint. But anyway, that's what I'm told. And so there's diversity. Every one of us is different. God made us differently. God intends us to be different. God intends that. But I don't believe that God makes two people that are completely incompatible and then he turns around in his book and says, get along. God doesn't do things that way. God doesn't do things that way. Well, diversity within the church. 1 Corinthians 12, let's turn there. A few things that I want us to look at in this thing of diversity and God's intentions in diversity. He begins in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that they were Gentiles carried away with these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore I give you unto you understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God called Jesus a curse, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord by the, by the Holy Ghost. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administration, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all and in all. 
But the manifestation of, manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirit, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, but all these work is that one and the self-same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. There is nobody that can do the job here in this congregation or your congregation, wherever you're from, just like you. No one can take your place. And, but yet, the spirit... The, the Lord of the church is the one that's behind it all. Well, how, how do we take all this diversity and all these different gifts and abilities and put them together and we become unified? Well, that's the big question. Then he goes on and he talks about the body being one and some, some analogy out of the body and how... The hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you, and so go get lost. But the, our, our natural bodies don't work that way. Verse 28, and God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, government, diversities of tongues, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Well, we know the answer to all of those questions. The answer is no. But then he says, verse 31, but covet earnestly the best gift, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way than we have the love chapter that follows. And we can do our job extremely well. We can fulfill our, our gift to its tilt. But, but chapter 13 tells us if we don't have love, it doesn't profit us the thing. Turn with me to Romans 12. We have a similar list, and I remind us that it's the same writer, so it probably is no should be no surprise that it's very similar. Romans 12, a few verses here, verses 3 to 8. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now, let's stop here just a little. Why does Paul bring up this thing of personal opinion or having a high opinion of your own opinion before he gets into the same list that he had in 1 Corinthians 12? I think it's I think it's unique. I think it's God breathed that he did that. Because over here in our diagram, 
It's in our thought life, over there in our heart, our cognition. It's in our thought life that dictates what we say and how we, how we view other people's perspectives, other people's opinions about a given situation. And then, depending on all that, we have a bridal tongue or an unbridled tongue, as James 1 would tell us. All right, let's continue on. Verse 4. For as we have many members of one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophecy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching. For he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that sheweth mercy with cheerfulness. So we all have something to do in the congregation. God gives gifts, and he passes them out, and he expects us to use those. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And let's stop here just a little bit. What is the calling that God has called you to? We talked about this Saturday night, last evening. The call of the church, or the, the, the definition of the church, is the called out ones. Called out from what? A world of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is our calling. And so if we're going to be worthy of the vocation of whether, whether we've been called, wherewith we are called, we need to, verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Chapter 12, he addressed the love issue kind of after the list of the diversities and, and how the body works. In Ephesians 4, he puts this love factor and our thoughts and imaginations and our thinking process before he gets to this list of diversities and how it should work. Verse 3, he encourages us, endeavoring, the word endeavoring has the idea of, of with speed, pursuing. And so are we endeavoring, are we pursuing to keep or guard the unity or the oneness of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Is that really where we're at? Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That sounds a little bit like 1 Corinthians 12. But unto every one of you is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he said, when he ascended upon high, he led, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Drop down to verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, 
unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more tossed, no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love. There we have this love word again. May grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. To me, it is quite obvious that God intends the congregation to have differing viewpoints or perspectives on given issues within the congregation. For illustration, we see in all three of these passages that God gives different gifts however he will, whomever he will. And so some, and I'm going to pick two of them out because these two seem to be kind of on the opposite poles of viewpoints. And probably between these two gifts, more there's been more church division and strife because because of the kind of the polarizing effect. But God gives a given congregation prophets and pastors. The gift of prophets and gift of pastors. And and these two gifts, like I said, are kind of at the opposite ends of the poles when it looks at a a given issue. A prophet will look at an issue and say, well, look at the trend of the past, and if he keeps doing that, this is where they're going to go in the future. And the current relationship today, the emotional relationship today is secondary. A prophet, and 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 I realize I'm maybe kind of painting an extreme picture here, But a prophet elevates the facts of the past and the direction of the future to a higher plane than the relationship today. And if someone falls out of the ship because of it, so be it, because truth was upheld. The pastor is is completely the opposite. A pastor tends to forget the, the direction of the past or the facts of the past and not 100% concerned about where this person is going in the future if he doesn't change but he's concerned about the second or third or fourth or fifth chance that is given to this person. We take him for what they want to be today, and the relationship is elevated to the point where, you know, we, we need to love. We need to love. We need to love. And you see where the pastor and the prophet looking at a given situation, it's just between night and day. They might be right in their own right. The pastor or the prophet may be right and say, well, this person doesn't make any changes today, and so they come along with a turn or burn message today because the future doesn't look too good if there's no change today. He may be right. The prophet or the pastor may be right too, and say, well, if we don't give them a third or fourth or fifth chance today, there won't be no chance for the future. 
we need to love. We need to do what we can. We maybe we need to bend some rules to make things happen, to make room. And he may be right. And so how do we put these two right perspectives and mesh it? They will never agree unless they're willing to see from the other's perspective. The prophet needs to say, you know what? Maybe we, maybe we ought to give them another chance. But remind you, this is the track record. And if he doesn't change, that's where he's going to hit. And the, pro, and the pastor should say, you know, the prophet is right. If he doesn't change, that's where he's going to end up. And, they, and, and, and I made mention this morning in Gary Miller's book, Again, a very good read, and he and he discusses some of this. Another book that's a very good read, if you're into reading books, is Simon Schrock's writing on uh, Your Strength Becomes Your Weakness. I don't know if you've seen that book around or not, but it's a more recent book. It's but it's a a good a good book to read in in relation to some of this and getting along. And what what can happen, or why the prophet and the pastor just cannot blend is because they feel like they need to compromise their viewpoint or their opinion in order to make it happen. And so they just keep right on marching into their opinions and I have seen congregations divide because some of them were for Paul and some of them were for Apollos and you ended up with two congregations. I'm convinced that that is not God's intention. God doesn't put the pastor and the prophet within the congregation to divide the congregation. We just read here in Ephesians 4 why he puts the pastor and prophet together in the same congregation. Let me reread for you. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry. What's what's the primary work of the ministry? And I'm not talking about just the ministry that's ordained. The ministry of, of the, the mission of the church. Isn't it reconciliation? One with another within the congregation as well as reconciliation in in calling the, the outside one to be reconciled in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And when there's dissension and and carnality within the congregation because we're following Paul or following, following Apollos, it destroys the effective work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. Verse 13, this, this, these different gifts within the church are to be active till we all come in the unity of the faith unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When, when the prophet or the pastor or any one of these gifts is missing in the congregation, the congregation is hampered, is limited in their witness for Jesus Christ. And so, no, we can't be an island by our own selves. We can't be a perfect church by ourselves. You all are absolutely correct. You cannot be a perfect church by yourself. We need each other. 
talking with a brother after church this morning, and we were talking about this thing of brotherhood agreement, and there's ditches on both sides, and and we kind of started getting into tonight's tonight's subject, and and I said, you know, depending on whether a person is a prophet or a pastor depends on how much of a church discipline you need. It's interesting that probably if, if the congregation was all pastors, oh, we're all, you know, we're loving Jesus, we're just all love, 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 love. We don't need a rules and discipline. A pastor doesn't need rules and discipline. They're, they get in the way because they're, they, they restrict love. And the and the prophet is totally opposite. Oh, we need we need rules and discipline, and we need everything spelled out. It needs to be black and white because they can't operate outside of black and white. So, aren't we funny people? But God made us that way, and we need to and we need to be willing to see differing viewpoints, something that's different than my own through someone else's perspective. That's the only way it's going to work, just like in our marriages. I'm convinced that I can take two people, don't even know each other, have no clue, background, whatever, and marry them, and they can have a good marriage. Simply if they ideally follow the diagram on the board and crucifying self, and living for the other person instead of living for self. I can take two people that knew nothing about each other, marry them, and have a good marriage. And God's, I think, intention is the same way with the congregation. There should be no person within a given congregation that is incompatible in that congregation. It's not necessarily the congregation's fault if that's the case. It might be your fault. And so God help us as we sacrifice ourselves, sacrifice our opinions, giving our lives, laying it down for the sake of the brotherhood as Jesus did for Christ in the church. All right, let's look at a few blessings. <clears throat> blessings of unity in the congregation or in the church. Number one, to me, it proves God's authority within the congregation. And we can go to 1 Corinthians 1, by the way, let's do that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. And he's giving a call for unity. I'm not sure exactly what the, the unity level was at Corinth when Paul was writing this to them. But verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. You see any unity there? Lots. And that there be no division among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. There we have the thinking process taking place. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Cleo, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you say it. I'm of Paul, and I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, and I of Christ. And some people were so religious and so pious and say, well, we're, we're going to follow Christ. Ooh, isn't that beautiful? We all want to follow Christ. But yet some people kind of hide behind a lot of pietism to make themselves look so, so spiritual and so, so wonderful. And it all deduces down to having self on the throne. 
they're just as guilty as those that were following Paul and Apollos. Regardless of who our leaders are, this is God's kingdom. Jesus said, I will build the church. This is God's kingdom. And we are here laboring for him and for his glory. So unity in the church proves God's authority. It's God's church. And we are just his ambassadors, representatives of his. There has been much conflict and division in conservative Anabaptist churches because they were more focused on who is right instead of trying to determine what is right. And and this kind of this kind of yeah, there's a lot of power struggles. I'm I'm afraid too much power struggle in some of our brotherhoods. Jesus said in Matthew 20 verses 25 to 28, his disciples, some of his disciples put their mother in asking Jesus who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They realized that Jesus' earthly ministry, there was something grand and glorious about ready to happen. They didn't know what all was going to happen, but it seemed to me that something was great, and Jesus was just about ready to enter some kingship. And, and we want to be part of this kingship, and we want to, be, we want to have this great seat and be, be maybe vice president or, or the president's assistant or however they did it. And Jesus called them in verse 25 of Matthew 20 and said unto them, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. In my, in my understanding of that word minister comes from the Greek word diakonos which where we get the word deacon. Uh, deacons are very viable people in the congregation, aren't they? And that word diakonos, in my understanding in, in the Greek, the definition of the diakonos is basically a table waiter. And so you're sitting at a restaurant, a sit-in restaurant, and you spill your cup of juice. Who cleans it up? The diakonos. Feel like a do you feel like a table waiter sometimes? Yeah, the diakonos. Let's say let's say you get mad at the, at the restaurant and you ordered ordered water and they brought you Pepsi and you got just totally irate about it and I, and and you just take that cup and just pour it out on the floor. Who cleans it up? The diakonos. And and. Maybe maybe you take your plate of food and something was wrong on your plate of food and you take it and you slam it down on the floor with extreme force. Who cleans it up? The diakonos. Do you think the diakonos ought to have a smile on his face when he cleans things up like that? Yeah. I have never seen a table waiter that come out and says, well, that's your fault. Now you go back in the janitor's closet and you get the, the, the stuff and you clean it up. Did you, has that been your experience? Uh, they all come up, oh, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. I'll, we'll take care of it, just, you know, just let it be all so sweet and so. The way your di- diaconus works around here, 
prayer at all. I'm sorry. Put me on the spot. But you know what? That's exactly what Jesus says. If you want to be the greatest among your people, be a diakonos. Clean up the messes. Intentional or unintentional. Doesn't matter. Clean it up with a smile on your face. Sometimes we try to identify the where the fault is, and then we try to make people responsible. Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest, get down on your knees and clean it up. Whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be deaconed to, but to be a deacon, the and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus giving that perfect example of proving God's authority. And then in chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus said, He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Shall be your servant. It's not about who. It's not about power struggle. It's about willing to give up yourself, myself, for the sake of the brotherhood. And it proves God's authority. Number two, the second blessing, it proves that we love God. Turn with me to 1 John. First John chapter 4 few verses here <clears throat> and I just I just appreciate John's perspective on this on this thing of love and how he lifts it up and there's different passages of scripture tonight that we looked at as, as that brought love into the picture love into the picture and that song that we sang that second verse brought love into the picture so when we have unity in the congregation it proves that we love God first John 4 verses a few verses here Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Very clear, isn't it? Sometimes I think we kind of have a hard time deciding whether where love is at, where love is not. And sometimes we have a harder seeing it harder time seeing it in my own life. I mean, after all, I'm establishing and standing for truth. And so my therefore my opinion ought to rule. Verse eleven, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Down to verse twenty. If any man if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we have from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. So when it comes to unity in the congregation and the prophet and pastor are doing it out, how are they to fulfill first John's uh, chapter four? How can how can the prophet and pastor love each other? How is that practical? It's simply by trying to see the issue from their perspective. 
I mean, his later said, well, but I tell you, if someone else doesn't pick up on it, then I think we just need to zip the lips. God's kingdom is much greater than my kingdom. Third blessing, it convinces the world that God sent his son Jesus that they might believe and be healed. Turn with me to John 17. This is the high priestly prayer, and I am challenged as I consider what Jesus prayed in John 17. This whole chapter is a prayer. He starts out the verse five verses. He prays for himself, and then verses six to nineteen, he prays for his current disciples, and then chapter verse twenty to the end of the chapter, he prays for all those that believe after this. Which I think we ought to find it special that God, that Jesus prayed for you. Jesus prayed for the Bethany Church of 2020. And and if you read verses 20 to 26, the the theme in that prayer is a, a Jesus desired unity, a oneness. Verse 21, he says, well, let me read verses 20 to 26 and then come back and pull a few things out. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast believed and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Prayer for oneness and unity. It's a powerful prayer. It's a powerful prayer. Verse 21, that the oneness of the congregation of the congregation here at Bethany could be evident to the world around that the world may believe. The world may believe that thou hast sent me. Verse 23, we have some very similar words. Again, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know. So verse 21 is world may believe. Verse 23 is the world may know that thou hast sent me. And hast loved them, and thou hast loved me. And then verse 24. 
that this oneness, this unity within the congregation, that they may behold, and he's talking about the, those that are still living in darkness, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. And so the oneness within the congregation exemplifies or lifts up the glory of God. Do we hold the unity of the congregation to that level? The fourth blessing we also see in verse 18, which is prior to some of this, it empowers the church to move forward. Verse 18, and he's talking and he's praying for his current disciples, but he says this, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. And so there's a unity of will and desire between the Father and the Lord Jesus. And he says, as that, as that will becomes one, God's desire for those that follow after him or those of his disciples, he sends them into the world. And so the oneness and the unity within the congregation empowers the church to fulfill their ministry, to fulfill their calling, and to move forward in the kingdom. Fifth blessing, the church becomes a haven for those that are lacking spiritually, physically, and emotionally. Turn with me to Acts 4 on that one. And there could be more blessings, but we'll quit with this one. Acts chapter 4. I think this might have been in our Sunday school lesson a week or two ago. Verses 32 to 35. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart. There we have this oneness word again, this unity word of one heart and of one soul. Neither said of any of them that ought to the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. See, there we have this, this sufficiency that is being spread around, or spread around within the congregation. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And I realize that this setting here had to do with more of the physical aspect, but doesn't it work that way on the spiritual side of things? We ought to be those that are more mature in the Word, taking the time to disciple the babes in Christ so that they can understand. And both of these, spiritually and physically, meeting the spiritual and physical needs does affect us emotionally. If if you're experiencing a lack and the congregation doesn't come to your aid and, and... the deacon knows about it, the diaconos knows about it, but doesn't come and wash your feet, so to speak. Does, does that do anything to you emotionally? Yeah, it does. That does. They, they don't care. 
by the way, there's more deacons than just those that are filling the office of deacon, okay? So the church should become a haven. When there's unity, it becomes a haven for those that are lacking. And that is a tremendous blessing, a tremendous blessing, that we can come and we can gain help in our afflictions and find comfort. And we see verse 36, we have a man by the name of Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, and the, and the reason they named Barnabas was because Barnabas meant the son of consolation. And the reason he was called the son of consolation was because he willingly sold some of his land and laid it at the apostles' feet and said, here, use it. Bless somebody with it. And he didn't have strings attached. He, he said, just, there, take it, use it. And he was called Barnabas because of that the son of consolation, if you want to be called a Barnabas, if you want to be the diaconos of your church, just make your things available. You need it, come get it. Help yourself, including your checkbook. That's maybe a little tougher said than done. May God be glorified in this congregation as we all submit to each other as we work, call, sing, pray together. May God give his grace to this end and how happy we'll all be. God bless you.